You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 9th of October, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Nikki Haley has resigned from her post as ambassador to the UN. She's done a fantastic job and we've done a fantastic job together. We've solved a lot of problems and we're in the process of solving a lot of problems. At the beginning, uh, North Korea was a massive problem and now we're moving along. It's moving along really nice. Donald Trump took the news well, but will things still be moving along really nicely without Haley on the international stage? My guests George Brock and Sebastian Borger will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the IMF warns of another looming financial crash on the back of Washington's trade war with the rest of the world. How will news change global trade policy? And how will Angela Merkel handle the latest threat to her leadership ahead of two important regional votes? Plus. What has the school curriculum glossed over in your country? In Russia, where most people say they're curious about history, it appears more than half of young people have no idea of the atrocities that happened during Stalin's rule. That and more, all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bage. So welcome to Midori House. My guest today, Sebastian Borger and George Brock. Welcome, gentlemen, both to the program. We turn our attention first to Washington, where another high-profile politician is on the way out of Donald Trump's administration. The White House confirmed today it has accepted the resignation of U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley who will leave her post at the end of this year. Haley is a moderate Republican voice who was able to sway the unpredictable president's opinion on sanctions against Russia, refugees, and the UN itself, amongst other things. Haley was the first cabinet-level UN ambassador for a Republican president since the end of the Cold War, and it was always clear she saw the post as a ticket to a higher office. Let's hear a little bit of what she had to say just a short time ago. There's no personal reasons. I think that it's just very important for government officials to understand when it's time to step aside. And I have given everything I've got these last eight years. And I do think that sometimes it's good to, to rotate in other people who can put that same energy and power into it. So there really is a lot of people are going to want to say there's a lot of reasons why I'm leaving. The truth is I want to make sure that, that this administration, the president, has the strongest person to fight. So that's Nikki Haley there speaking a short time ago in the Oval Office. She says she will be backing Donald Trump in the 2020 election and not running against him. The former South Carolina governor has time and again been a vocal contrast to, uh, to Trump, often an outspoken critic of the president's position. But she's also backed him up in some ways. Uh, perhaps it's a surprise she's lasted so long. What do you, what do you think of that? I think uh, that she may... If she has presidential ambitions, let's put it this way, mm. I think she might possibly have started thinking, will Trump run again in 2020? It's now quite obvious that he will. Um, and if you are relatively young as she is, as presidential candidates go, she could afford to say, well, I can think about running in 2024, but if I was going to do that, I wouldn't really stick in government service for all of that time. So there's a moment to stop. And I'm not sure that her working relations with Trump have been that good. Mm. There was a very bad smash between them 
in April, she want, she announced indeed, and if she didn't want, she did say there would be sanctions on Russian companies that had helped Syria with its chemical weapons. There had been a very bad chemical weapons attack in Syria just before. And uh, she was contradicted the next day uh, by Trump, and there was quite a nasty spat. So I don't think she was quite as influential as she may now be going to wish to make make out. And she may decide to take a long run at the presidency by making, for example, a lot of money to start with. Mm, yeah, fair enough. She said there in that clip that uh, after eight years, she was a little bit tired, perhaps needed a break. And, and that Trump seemed to know about this, that she maybe made it clear to him some six months ago that she wanted to step away. Uh, but Sebastian, do you think Haley wanted to sort of stick it out for two years as she's been, been in that position to show maybe that she could handle Trump ahead of uh, perhaps taking a run at him in the future? Uh, to be honest, I don't believe a word of what she's saying. Mm. I mean, c come on, a 46-year-old woman, uh, highly successful, clearly, in politics, able to um, to be, uh, uh, you know, at some influence of in the administration. Um, according to people uh, closer to the UN than we are here in London, um, much happier in the team with, with Pompeo, the new... Well, not so new now anymore, but the the second secretary, uh, Trump's second secretary of state, not so. She uh, she she was less happy with Rex Tillerson, his predecessor, um, and and quite happy with with Bolton, the the security advisor as well. So I I don't buy it for one moment. Um, either they've either there's a, a much deeper disagreement, um, or I mean there are some rather. Uh, unclear corruption allegations against her from her time as mm -hmm. governor of South Carolina um, or as uh, uh, George suggested it, it might be to, to, to want to earn some money but I mean uh, it, really two years is not, not even two years well she, she wants to serve to the end mm. two years is nothing I think. I mean, really, she should have stuck it out for one, for one period. Well, Haley indeed was one of Trump's biggest critics when he was campaigning, but shifted her position, defending him time and again, as I mentioned, since he has taken office. This includes criticizing the opinion piece in the New York Times from a White House official last month, describing a chaotic administration. She wrote her own piece, saying the best way to deal with Trump is face to face. But now that voice is gone, uh, sort of a moderate that, as I said, might have been able to sway his opinion. Uh, George, is that a concern for you that uh, perhaps uh, Trump is moving forward even further unchecked? I don't think there have been very effective checks mm. on Trump from the start. I just certainly don't think the people around him have done much of that kind. I mean, they might say to us, well, you should have seen the things he wanted to do and we persuaded mm. him not to and you don't know about. But uh, it's been pretty bad. I don't think, I don't really think that checks and balances are the, uh, are the issue um, there are if if they lose in the midterms, which are just around the corner now, um, then obviously, and he doesn't, and the Republicans don't control the Senate, or or they just control the Senate and they lose Congress, then uh, then you know his the president's room for maneuver under any circumstances mm. mu is much less. There's much less that he can do, but I don't frankly think the departure of Nikki Haley really changes the kind of can we make him sensible balance mm. or not. Most of the evidence says that's really, really, really hard.
The only positive thing is that um, uh, she may be succeeded by Richard Grenell, who is mm. the current U.S. ambassador to Germany. And all I can say is good riddance to this terrible <laughs> man. Well, uh, perhaps there on the international stage. On the on the flip side, uh, Haley, as we've said, a bit of a moderate voice, uh, seeming seemingly but why, someone. Sorry, sorry, Daniel, but, but where is the moderation? I I don't get mm. the moderation. I mean, the way the way she she dealt with the Israel, the, the, the mm. you know oh, the, yeah. the issue, for example. Where's the moderation? I can't see it. I mean, perhaps in her tone, I guess, if you compare her to Donald Trump, maybe someone that uh, on the international stage, even though she yeah. is uh, a Republican, seen as someone that could be worked with, could. Uh, you know, you could deal with. No, you're um, right. But the tone is different, mm, no doubt. Yes. But is that a problem then for the U.S. if they don't have her sort of on that international stage, even though she was bold? You're right. Well, in that sense, uh, Grenell would be the, <laughs> the wrong man to succeed her because that's exactly what he did in Germany um, on the more or less the first day of his appointment there. But the way, the way Trump but, works, I mean, just blots out everyone else. Mm. You know, does anybody remember that Mike Pompeo is the Secretary of State? Well, professional diplomats do. The rest of the world doesn't. Yeah, but it matters who the ambassador at the UN is, don't you think? I mean, just for the day-to-day dealings. And and in that sense, you want someone who is at least more emollient in tone. I I think that's that's a fair point. you, You certainly need a negotiator. And of course, if you're at the UN, you know... I'm just, I'm just simply pointing out we're in a rather weird political phase in mm. which the president behaves and speaks in a way, and tweets indeed, in a way which just kind of tends to render these people less visible than they were before. You know, I can't, before she resigned today, I don't know when I last heard about Nikki Haley, but I, yeah. quite some months since I've heard her say anything significant. Mm. Even at uh, the UN, where, where Trump uh, obviously made a splash in recent weeks, you're right, we didn't really hear much uh, from uh, from Nikki Haley. But she's one of few women in that administration, the daughter of immigrants from India. Haley, even last year, said uh, the woman that had accused Mr. Trump of sexual assault should be heard. Uh, but even uh, being his exact opposite, she, she was still likely an ally, was she not? We will maybe see another woman in the post. Mm. Isn't there talk of Ivanka ever succeeding? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and wouldn't we be delighted with that? <laughs> Perhaps. The madness has no <laughs> limits. Well, uh, from serious concern about the world to more serious concern about the world, the International Monetary Fund is warning Washington's simmering trade war with China and Europe will hit global growth over the next two years. The IMF forecast the global economy will grow 3.7% this year and next. That's uh, just slightly down from its April forecast of 3.9%. And this is if things don't get any worse on the trade front. Last month, the U.S. president, of course, slapping extra duties of $200 billion on Chinese goods and China retaliating with its own measures. Uh, and this after the U.S. increased duties on the import of steel and aluminum and cars. Trump has been somewhat insulated by a strong U.S. economy and more than $1.1 trillion in tax cuts uh, were expected to maintain GDP growth in the U.S. But uh, Mr. Trump perhaps won't be insulated for so long. What do you think, George? I think that what the IMF said a week ago is the important uh, addition or the parallel thing to to these slightly reduced uh, growth predictions they made today. They warned about a financial crash Um, shadow banking, an enormously heavy global level of debt to which you could now add uh, worries about the euro uh, in relation to Italy. Mm. Um, And they're starting, people are starting, markets obviously starting to think a bit more seriously, alas, about, you know, if there was going to be, if, if the stock market was going to fall off the shelf, 
how was it how would it happen would it mm. be a crash in china caused by the trade war would it be a euro crisis caused by italy um there are just there's just rather a large crowd of things beginning to the market is beginning to wonder whether this isn't a perfect storm i mm. think Officials at the uh, International Monetary Fund said much of the decline in global growth was also the result of many developing countries being hit hard by a depreciation in their currencies, which had increased the cost of imports and especially oil. As, as you mentioned, George, this could also c- cause concern about borrowing. Surely this will only make things worse in other economies. Is that not right, Sebastian? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the, the prediction for the Chinese economy, it's actually higher uh, higher now than they predicted it in April hmm. of this year, uh, well above six percent. So the Chinese aren't bothered. The Americans, I don't think, are particularly bothered hmm. because their economy is is ticking along very nicely indeed. Thank you, um, which makes me rather pessimistic, I have to say, about the Democrats' expectations in the midterm elections. But that's another story. Um, Britain will be hard hit, I think. Any any uh, trade problems in the world will be a problem and of course uh, on top of uh, uh, the normal vulnerability there's Brexit. Germany will be hard hit. Mm. Mm, Germany's uh, uh, they're predicting less growth growth for Germany and as George pointed out I think the the, the much worse problem coming down the tracks at us at a high speed, unfortunately, is the euro. Uh, if the Italians carry on the way they are, the Italian government, then we'll have a full-blown crisis within the next eight weeks, I predict. Uh, inside uh, Europe, then, uh, how have governments been sh- sort of shifting their policy? Maybe, maybe let's start with Germany. Uh, you know, are they more uh, than concerned about this sort of global growth, or is the, the question of the euro sort of having people look over their shoulders more? Well, Germany, of course, is, is uh, in my view, uh, doing the wrong kind of fiscal uh, policy. That they're, they're, they've reduced the deficit uh, admirably. Um, they have they've now run a surplus for I think two or even three years running. They're not investing enough, which really needs to be done. I mean, uh, you look at the infrastructure in parts of Germany, particularly Western Germany, funnily enough, um, and you really you really see that it need there needs mm. investment to be done, also to to uh, to uh, um, kickstart or, or or at least keep the eurozone um, moving along. Um, so, so that's uh, that's that's no good. I mean, I, 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 again, I have sympathy with what the Italian government is is saying in terms. In, in, in just in when you look at the economic terms, I think we we do need to move away from austerity. I have no doubt about that, uh, as as uh, Prime Minister May here in Britain said last week, uh, without actually putting a time frame on it, but. That that is something that needs to be done. It's it just the uh, when when you talk about um, the the Commission in Brussels as the the enemies of Europe, as mm-hmm. um, Mr. Salvini has done, uh, then then the, the the markets will will punish you as they do. If we look at Britain now, uh, which will also, as the IMF says, be hit by slower growth as France and Germany will, but Brexit, I imagine, is in fact doing a better job of slowing the UK economy. But uh, this will only add uh, to the concern in this country, George, is that not right, on perhaps where to turn um, for trading partners? Well, the search for tra- trading partners other than the EU is turning out is turning out to be extremely extremely tough. I think 
I think what's happening, however, is that there is a combination of things going on. Let me just take the, the example of the car industry. This applies mm. to Germany as well as the UK, but it's very important to the UK. Once upon a time, we had a big car industry, then we had a very small car industry. And over the last 20, 25 years, it's grown back to a considerable degree of success. Now, the, pro the problem with investment that Sebastian was drawing attention to just now, which applies in, in a smaller scale in Britain, but it's very similar to the one in Germany, is that what the car makers need to do is to invest in non-diesel cars. They all basically bet on diesel, mm. and that's turned out to be a cat catastrophe. Now, turning car factories over to non-diesel cars is huge. You're effectively rebuilding the entire factory. New machines, new robots, new skills, everything. It's a huge investment. And it's absolutely obvious in the case of the British car industry, I'd be interested to know whether it's the same in Germany, it's just not happening fast mm. enough. And they're now starting to close factories this is not to do with Brexit. Brexit isn't making it any better, but actually it's basically because they're simply not selling enough cars. Hmm. Well, uh, interesting and fascinating analysis from my guests here. I want to take a short break, but coming up, we'll dig deeper into Germany and ask, how will Angela Merkel fare in just the latest test to her leadership? Stay tuned. How do you unpack stories in the most engaging way while building a credible and comprehensive brand? Monocle Films visits three media companies in Paris, Munich and Tel Aviv to find out about the most innovative designs for paper and screen. It's good when you have lots of eyes or lots of thoughts on the same uh, topic and then at the end you can distill something new out of it. Uh, I've always been uh, interested in ideas from outside. This is uh, important for me. Designing the News, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Tune in to the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24 weekdays at 2200 London time. We unpack the stories that have been dominating the discussion in Europe and North America and set the agenda for a new day in Asia. The show features regular insights and analysis from Monocle's bureau in Toronto and New York, special guests there and across the Americas, as well as experts and analysts at our studios in London. Whether it's industry-focused reports on anything from art and architecture to business and entertainment, or a light-hearted guide to how to spend the perfect weekend in a great city somewhere in the world, you're in good hands. Monocle's network of global correspondents are your guides. Join our team every weekday for the Monocle Daily on Monocle 24. So welcome back to Midori House. Still with me, George Brock and Sebastian Borger. Now, could Angela Merkel be gearing up for the most testing period of her long reign as German Chancellor? Bavarians will head to the polls this weekend, and later this year, she will also bid for re-election as chair of her CDU party. Merkel will also have to do it all without her long-standing ally, Volker Kauder, who was ousted as head of her parliamentary party last month. Sebastian, perhaps we'll start with you here. Regional votes in Bavaria and Hesse could be a huge indication of where Merkel stands. Can you just walk us through a little bit of, of how her leadership could be tested here? Well, there's two problems. One, the first problem is in Bavaria, of course, the um, it's it's been the fiefdom of uh, Merkel's more right-wing allies, the, the, the CSU, um, for the last 50 years. And, and the latest opinion polls show them, rather than, rather than having 62% as mm. they had uh, 30 years ago and 54% as they had uh, 25 years ago, 
um, they're now stuck at 33%. Mm. That's a, 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 a catastrophe for, for this party. Um, and, and, um, and they blame Merkel for it, which of course is uh, <laughs> convenient and wrong, but um, I'm sure there's, there's part of it is, is not just Merkel, but the very lackluster performance of the new grand coalition in, in Berlin. I mean, I think that the, Merkel made two strategic errors beyond, uh, you know, we can talk about migration mm. um, till the cows come home, but another two, I think. First was to stand for re-election last year, um, and the second was to then go for this grand coalition again, mm. because she's... It, the, the Social Democrats are proud. The oldest Labour Party in the world, 155 years old, is dying in her arms. I mean, mm. you know, um, withering uh, away. It's 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 very very sad. I mean, they are now in in Bavaria where they've traditionally been been weak, um, but they were at 25 30 percent. They are now polling at 10 percent. And of course, the the um, extreme right, the AfD alternative for Deutschland is at 12-13%. So that's really not, not, not nice. Now, a fortnight later, later this month, there'll be the, as you said, the regional elections in Hesse, where that, that is now her own party, right. with her own, uh, with a, a, a strong ally um, in in power in Wiesbaden. Um, interestingly, with the conservative Green Coalition. Um, and if he is ousted as well, then the knives are going to be out. There's mm. no doubt about it. I mean, she will be re-elected at the end of November at the party conference. But um, but the, the, you always you don't look whether she's re-elected or not, but you look at what, what the percentage is mm. going to be. George, uh, Sebastian's uh, laid out sort of some of the, the issues that uh, Merkel has to, had to go through in recent days. Of course, a migration crisis and, and this whole uh, stalling of naming a coalition. But uh, presiding over her fourth government, is this a case perhaps of inevitable fatigue amongst voters as well? Just, just tired of, of, of the same sort of leader that uh, maybe isn't moving, moving the country forward? I certainly think there's a bit of that. But I, mm. I think we should also look a little bit beyond the immediate crises, obviously migration has shifted the political landscape in mm. Germany to some extent. But right across Europe, and you can argue in the rest, in other parts of the world too, there is a strange phenomenon whereby, just as in Germany, both the right and the left, as we knew them, are losing ground. Mm. So what's happening is a de-alignment from major parties. It's not about which side of the ideological spectrum they lie, People are just stopping being interested in established politicians. They just don't trust them. They don't like them to the degree that they did. So that a leader like Merkel, who when the CSU was performing reasonably strongly and had very strong Bavarian allies in the CSU, who, as Sebastian just pointed out, could regularly poll mm. over 50%, a not particularly charismatic but very effective and very skillful politician like Merkel was a considerable asset. When you get this very, very new and dangerous situation, an asset becomes a, not just loses its power as an asset, it mm. becomes a liability. Right. And I think that that's what a lot of her party is beginning to think. However, she has an enormous accumulated credit in the bank. So I don't think there's going to be a coup. And there's I no obvious I alternative. That's I don't, the other there's thing. no obvious alternative. And I don't yes. think Sebastian would say there's likely to be a coup against her right. anytime soon. But the fact is, she's struggling.
So moving forward then, Sebastian, uh, you say she, she will get reelected likely in the near future. What yes. is the next step then? We, we've mentioned this sort of shift towards the center, uh, move away from traditional parties. But what would her next step be if, if she does remain in charge? Um, I think she will go of her own volition and, and maybe rather sooner sooner rather than later. Sure. Um, I could also Im- imagine that there's another crisis um, which might actually uh, persuade the, the Social Democrats to leave the government. And then the, the, the Conservatives uh, could do with possibly a new leader what I think they ought to have done this uh, this spring, uh, namely uh, lead a minority government. It's unheard of in mm. Germany. We're, we're not we're not particularly keen on on that kind of rather unstable um, uh, circumstances. But I think it would have been the, the much better way because then you've got to go about in Parliament and talk to the different factions mm. and see where you can get support for certain policies. They're not moving the country along. That's mm. you know that's the problem. They they have a they have a nominal majority in the in Parliament. They could do things. They're not doing them. Uh, George, just lastly, uh, do, do you think this uh, crisis in the euro or, or migration, what do you think is the biggest test uh, Merkel will face moving forward? What's, what's the biggest uh, thing voters are, are concerned about? Well, the the odds everywhere is that it's a domestic issue and not an international right. one. The um, euro. But, uh, mm, I'm afraid. I, I mean, the, obvi- the obvious threat is the euro mm. and or some kind of political crisis inside the EU caused either by Poland or by Hungary. We, of course, we're sitting here in London. We're terribly preoccupied with Brexit. But if you were Merkel, you know, Brexit wouldn't be at the top of your worry list. If you were thinking about the EU, Mm. Poland and Hungary would be. And and now, particularly over the noises over the last 10 days, Italy over the euro. I want to just uh, make sure we have time for our final topic here today. I think we could stay on Germany and the Euro for a while. But let's head to Russia, where a poll by a state-run pollster and the Gulag Museum has found that almost 50% of young people in Russia don't know about Stalin's purges. In fact, half of people aged 17 to 24 found out about Stalin's record from the poll itself. During Stalin's rule, it's estimated more than 20 million people were killed and executed in summary trials. Many argue there is nothing about the purges in the national school curriculum in Russia. Is there any chance that this has anything to do with uh, Mr. Putin or the government now, or is it a fact that young people just don't pay attention? I would think there's absolutely every chance that it's mm. to do with the government. Um, I mean, after all, in most countries, mm. the school curriculum is largely influenced by the government. It may not be dictated to it line by line, but it's right. a big, it, you know, it applies in this country and it applies most of other European countries I can think of. Um, so the chances are that it is, it is exactly what the government wants. Uh, and Putin has, after all, been quite open about the fact that he's on a mission to rehabilitate Stalin. Mm. Um, and, you know, bravo for things like the Gulag Museum, which is keeping this kind of memory alive. They can't exactly kind of suppress it. They can just kind of attempt to push it to one side, which mm. is the traditional Soviet way of dealing with uncomfortable uncomfortable information. But I think the fact that, you know, the youngsters don't know what went on in the Gulags or even that there were Gulags at all is, I mean, fr- frankly, I mean, it's appalling, but it doesn't surprise me. Mm. 
Yeah, in this poll, it showed that majority of people were, were very curious about family history and history itself. But uh, surprising to you at all, Sebastian? It's good that still 80% of Russians do know about yeah. Gulag. So overall, overall. You know, yes. uh, let's, let's uh, keep hold of that positive news. Mm. Um, yes, of course. I, I totally agree with uh, with George. The, uh, I mean, Putin is, is, uh, is openly uh, rehabilitating Stalin. I mean, we have a similar uh, thing. Uh, my my my, my youngest son is in year 13 in, in history A-level here in, in a British school. They they do all sorts of things. They do American history and they do the the, the Tudors. And, and all. what they don't do is the empire. Mm. I think that British youth is, is, is extraordinarily badly educated at the um, at the British empire. The, 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 the good bits, which were there as well, are but at the same time, the terrible slaughter and the concentration camps and all mm. of that, which is totally uh, brushed under the carpet as far as I can see. In a colonial sense or in Germany, you're talking? No, I'm talking Britain. Oh, in Britain. I was going to ask you about Germany, uh, of course, but uh, George, uh, what about yourself in Britain? Is there anything yet that uh, you know has surprised you uh, that, that's not talked about or, or not taught here? I think Sebastian's probably right. I think... Um, post-colonial, post-imperial history here has taken a long time to catch up with a balanced account of what, what went on. I mean, in historical terms, the end of the empire, British Empire, wasn't that long ago. Mm. Um, and uh, people are saying, you know, there's this vicious academic argument going on about whether you're really allowed any longer to say anything good about the empire at all. Is a balanced account even even possible? There's been a row in, um, in Oxford, particularly rec- Oxford University recently. Um yeah, I mean, there are curriculums always sway around. I mean, I'm I'm always very struck by how 20th century, the uh, and this bears to some extent on Sebastian's point about not going further back into imperial history. Mm. I'm not, I'm I'm just struck by the fact that British school hist- history curriculums just are terribly 20th century. Um, the, the point about history Hitler. Is, is the really, Hitler studies it, lots all and lots over, and lots yeah. and lots all of Hitler over. studies. Um, obsessed by it, but history is about really long curves, you know, really yeah. long trajectories. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you know, studying, you know, a really good historian thinks a century is a really rather short period of time to study. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Hitler, I mean, the Polish government has just, uh, haven't they actually passed a law saying you can't say that uh, there were any Polish collaborators uh, anymore, which is which is ridiculous. You know, of course, it was a Nazi policy, mm. um, the, the extermination of the, of the Jews. But but there were plenty of collaborators in lots of countries, amongst them Poland. Uh, and and if, you, if you don't tell your young people that, they, how should? How should they know about it? Uh, in in my country, where I grew up in Canada. It's really surprising to me that the the uh, history of our uh, relationship with the indigenous people is not more uh, taught. We're in a time now that the government calls a reconciliation, where they're uh, talking a lot about and apologizing for the residential schools. Uh, something uh, I wasn't taught at all growing up. I knew a lot about 20th century history, as as we've talked about. Uh, uh, anything that is left out of the German co- uh, curriculum, I should say. Uh, I think the, the what, what what the problem in Germany is now how to deal with the history history of East Germany. Mm. You know, um, is is it is it straightforward dictated by the West, therefore a very nasty communist dictatorship, or or is are there shades of grey again where you can say well there were there were there were some good bits in that society as well. That, I think that's the main problem at the moment. Mm. 
Fascinating analysis from uh, my guest today, George Brock and Sebastian Borger. I'm afraid we are out of time today. This show produced by Augustin Machelari and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Thank you for listening. Thank you.